Chapter Three of Mary Carey, Frequently Martha. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jan McGillivray. Mary Carey, Frequently Martha by Kate Langley Bosher. Chapter Three, Mary, Frequently Martha. I am going to write a history of my life. The things that happen in this place are the same things just like our breakfasts, dinners, and suppers. They wouldn't be interesting to hear about, so while waiting for something real exciting to put down, I'm going to write my history. I don't know very much about who I am. I wish my mother had left a diary about herself, but she didn't. Nobody, not even Miss Catherine, will tell me who I was before I came here, which I did when I was three. I know my nurse brought me, but I can't remember what she looked like, and when she went away without me. I never saw nor heard of her again. I don't even know her name. I thought it was fine to play in a big yard with a lot of children, and I soon stopped crying for my nurse. I never did see much sense in crying. Everybody was good to me, and not being old enough to know I was a charity child, and by nature happy. They used to call me Cricket. Sometimes some of them call me that now. A hundred dozen times I have asked Miss Catherine to tell me something about myself, but in some way she always gets out of it. I know my mother and father are dead, but that's all I do know, and I wouldn't ask Miss Bray if I had to stand alone forever and ever. Sometimes I believe Miss Catherine knows something she won't tell me. But since I found out she don't like me to ask her, I've stopped. And not being able to ask out what I'd like, I think a lot more. And some nights when I can't go to sleep, it gives me an awful sinking feeling right down in my stomach to think in all this great big world there isn't a human that's any kin to me. I might have come from the heavens above or the depths below, only I didn't. And being like other girls in size and shape and feelings, I know I once did have a mother and father. But if they had relations, they've kept quiet. And it's plain they don't want to know anything about me, never having asked. It would make me miserable. This aloneness would, if I let it. I won't let it. I have got to look out for Mary Carey, frequently Martha. And when you're miserable... You don't get much of anything that's going around. I won't be unhappy. I just won't. I haven't enough other blessings. But not being able to speak out as much as I would like on some things personal, I got into the habit of talking to my other self, which I named Martha, and which I call my secret sister. Martha is my everyday self, like the Bible Martha who did things and didn't worry trying to find out what couldn't be found out, especially about why God lets mothers die. Mary is my Sunday self, who wonders and wonders at everything and asks a million questions inside, and goes along and lets people think she is truly Martha, when she knows all the time she isn't. And if I do hold out and write a history of my life, it's going to be a Martha and Mary history, for some days I'm one, some another, and whichever I happen to be, 
is plain to be seen. When I grow up, I am going to marry a million-dollar man, so I can travel around the world and have a house in Paris with twenty bathrooms in it. And I'm going to have horses and automobiles and a private car and balloons if they are working all right by that time. I hope they will be, for I want something in which I can soar up and sit and look down on other people. All my life people have looked down on me, passing me by like I was a juni bug or a caterpillar, and I don't wonder. I'm merely Mary Carey, with fifty-eight more just like me. Blue calico, white dots for winter. White calico, blue dots for summer. Black sailor hats, and white sailor hats with blue capes for cold weather. And no fire to dress by. And freezing fingers when it's cold. And no ice water when it's hot. Yes, dear Mary, you and I are going to marry a rich man. Martha is writing today. I will try to love him, but if I can't, I will be polite to him and travel alone as much as possible. But I am going to be rich some day. I am. And when I come back to Yorkburg, eyes will bulge, for the clothes I am going to wear will make mouths water they're going to be so grand. Miss Catherine would be ashamed of that and make me ashamed, but this writing is for the relief of feelings. But there's one thing I'm surer of than I am of being rich, and that is that there are to be no secrets about my children's mother. They are to know all about me I can tell, which won't be much or distinguished, but what there is, they're to know. And that's the chief reason I'm going to write my history, so as to remember in case I forget. Well, now I will begin. I am eleven years and eleven months and three days old. I don't have birthday parties. The Yorkburg Female Orphan Asylum is a large house with a wide hall in the middle, and a wing on one side that makes it look like Major Green, who lost one arm in the war. There are large grounds around the house, and around the grounds is a high brick wall in front and a wooden fence back and sides. The children and the chickens use the grounds at the back. The front has grass and flowers and is for company, which is seldom. Sometimes, just because I can't help it, I chase a chicken through the front so as to know how it feels to run in the grass, which it is forbidden to do. Forbidden things are so much nicer than unforbidden. I love to do them until they're done. The asylum is on King Street almost at the very end, and there isn't much passing, just the Tates and the Gordons and a few others living farther on. The dining room is in the basement, half below the ground, and on cloudy days the lamps have to be lighted. That is, they used to. Now we have electric lights, and I just love to turn them on. It's such a grand way to get a thing done, just to press a button. The dining room has a picture over the mantel of a cow standing in yellow-brown grass, and though hideous, it's a great comfort. That cow understands our feelings at mealtimes, and we understand hers. Humane meals are very much like yellow-brown grass, and our clothes are on the same order as our meals. As for our days, if it wasn't for calendars, we wouldn't know one from the other 
except Sundays, for, unlike the stars mentioned by St. Paul, they differ not. The rising bell rings at five o'clock, and all except the very littlest get up and clean up until seven, when we march into the dining room. At 7.25 we rise at the tap of Miss Bray's bell, and those who have more cleaning upstairs march out. Those who clear the table and wash the dishes stay behind. At 8.30 we march into the schoolroom, where we have prayers and calisthenics. The calisthenics are fine. At 9 we begin recitations. We have a teacher who lives in town, Miss Alvira Struther. She's a good teacher. The older girls help teach the little ones, and next year I'm to help. This asylum is over ninety years old, but looks much older. There is just money enough to run it, and it hasn't had any paint or improvements in the memory of man, except the electric lights. The town put those in for safety and don't charge for them. I wish the town would put in bathtubs for the same reason. It would make the children much nicer. They just naturally don't like to wash, and one small pitcher of water for two girls don't allow much splashing. But Yorkburg hasn't any waterworks, not being born with them. I mean, waterworks not being the fashion when Yorkburg was first begun, nobody has ever thought of putting them in. Mr. Loyal, he's the mayor, says everybody has gotten on very well for over two hundred years without them and he don't see any use in stirring up the subject. So there'll never be any change until he's dead. And in Yorkburg, nobody dies till the last thing. There wouldn't be any electric lights if the shoe factory hadn't come here. The men who brought it came from New Jersey, and they wanted light and got it. And Yorkburg was so pleased that it moved a little and made some light for itself, and now everything in town just blazes, even the asylum. I used to sleep in number four, but I don't sleep there now. It is a big room and has six windows in it, and in winter we children used to play we were Arctic explorers and would search for icebergs. The North Pole was the Reagan's house halfway down the street, and it might as well have been, for it was as much beyond our reach. But it was the one thing we were all going to get some day when we married Rich. And when we got it, we were going to drive up to the Galt House. That's the home for poor and proud ladies. And ask for Mrs. Reagan, who was to be in it in the third floor back, and leave her some old clothes with the buttons off and old magazines. None of us could bear Mrs. Reagan. Not a single one. It is a beautiful house Mrs. Reagan's is. It has large white pillars in the front and back, and it's got three bathrooms and a big tank in the backyard, and it has velvet curtains over the lace ones, and gold furniture, and pictures with gold frames a foot wide. I heard Miss Catherine talking about it to Miss Webb one night. They were laughing about something Miss Catherine said was the most impossible of all. And Miss Webb said it was desecrating for such a stately old house to fall into the hands of such Bulgarians. What are Bulgarians? I don't know, but they're not ladies. Mrs. Reagan is not a lady. The way I found it out was this. Miss Jones, she's our housekeeper, 
sent a message to her one day by Bertha Reed and me about some pickles. Bertha is awful timid, and she didn't know whether or not we ought to go to the front door. But I did, and I told her to come on. I don't go to back doors if I don't know my family history, I said. I know who I am, and something inside of me tells me where to go. And I pressed the button so hard I thought I'd broken it unintentional. The manservant opened the door and looked at us as if weary and surprised, and said nothing. Is Mrs. Reagan in? I asked. She is. That's all he said. He waited. I waited. Then I stepped forward. We will come in, I said, and you go and tell her Mary Carey would like to see her, having a message from Miss Jones. And he was so surprised, he moved aside, and in I walked. I had heard so much about this house that I wasn't going to miss seeing what was in it, if that fool man was rude. So while he was gone to get Mrs. Reagan, I counted everything in the front parlor as quick as I could, and told Bertha to count everything in the back. There were three sofas, and two mirrors, and nine chairs, and six rugs, and six tables, and two pianos, one little old-fashioned one and a big new one, and three stools, and seventeen candlesticks, and four pedestals with statuary on them, some broken, all naked, and seven palms, and twenty-three pictures, and two lamps, and five red plush curtains, three pairs over the lace ones, and two at the doors, and as for ornaments, it was a shop. And not one single book. I am sure I got the things right, for I'd been practicing remembering at observation parties, in case I ever got a chance to see inside this house, and I looked hard so I could tell the girls. Poor Bertha was so frightened she didn't remember anything but the clock and a china cat and an easel and picture, and before I could count Mrs. Reagan came in. She stopped in the doorway, and had we come from Leperland, she couldn't have held herself farther off. "'What are you doing in here?' she asked, and she tried the haughty air. "'What are you doing in here?' "'We were waiting for you,' I said. "'We have a message from Miss Jones.' "'Well, another time don't wait in here, and don't come to the front door, if you have a message from Miss Jones or Miss anybody else.' I don't want any pickles this year. Had I wanted any, I would have sent her word. You understand? Don't ever come here again in this way. And she waved us out as if we were flies. For a minute I looked at her, as if she were a Mrs. Jorley's waxworks. And then I made a bow like I make in charades. We understand, I said, and we will not come again. We've heard a good many people in Yorkburg have been once and no more. And I bowed again and walked past her like she was a stage character, which she was, being a pretense and nothing else. Mad? I tell you, I was Martha for a week. And then I saw real sudden how silly I was to let a Bulgarian make me mad. But if I'm ever expected to love anything like that, it will be expecting too much of Mary Carey, mostly Martha, for she isn't an enemy. She's just a make-believe of something she wasn't born into being and don't know how to make herself. She don't agree with my nature, 
And if I had a parlor, she couldn't come into it either. She could not. End of chapter 3 Recording by Jan McGillivray